Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Film for Fans podcast, your home for movie news, reviews, and movie fan views. This is the podcast from movie fans for movie fans. I am your host, Ryan Dunlevy, and joined once again by my co-host, Rob Dunham. How you doing? All right. Well, we have got an excellent show in store for you. If you like the Film for Fans podcast, go ahead and share it with your friends. Uh, things are always better with friends, aren't they, Rob? I agree. They're just better with friends, and so are podcasts. So share the podcast with your friends. If you do, you too can experience your life in IMAX. Wow. That sounds pretty widescreen. Yes. I like it. Um, side note, uh, disclaimer, claims made on this show are not binding. Uh, yeah, so if you don't see IMAX cameras following you around, that's the reason. Yeah. Sometimes we make stuff up. We do. It happens from time to time. Okay, we've got a fantastic show for you. Uh, we're going to talk about... Um, a lot of box office stuff today. We're talking about In the Heights. We're talking about Black Widow. We're talking about um, Jurassic World Dominion getting a special intro upcoming here. And we will revisit the Goldfinch, talk about MCU villains, and break down our watch list. Rob, are you ready to get started? I am ready. Okay. Well, our first story for today involves one of the movies that's debuting this weekend, and that is In the Heights. This is the Lin-Manuel Miranda musical uh, that's getting its uh, movie treatment, uh, being directed by John Chu, who uh, directed Crazy Rich Asians. And the interesting thing about this movie was Fandango conducted a poll of 1,300 people. And as part of this poll, um, there was a huge portion of them who said that this would actually be the movie that brings them back to theaters. In fact, I think it was 96% will say this is the movie they're planning on seeing for the first time since the pandemic started. That seems like a really high number. But that uh, that bodes quite well for the In the Heights movie. What what do you make of of this being the movie that potentially brings people back? Yeah, I'm wondering if they uh, went down and pulled like people all in the one block span of Broadway. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I would be very interested to see like who exactly they for this because like you said the number is very high but i also do think that in the heights has an option to to be that kind of movie that brings a lot of people together and uh brings people out who might not necessarily have wanted to go see something else so i i think there's certainly potential like the the article said they're expecting 10 to mid tens kind of millions opening and i i could certainly see that happening uh, with this movie, I do think Lin-Manuel Miranda is an established name at this point. So I think you also might get some people who will come just to check that out because his name is attached to it. And I think there are a lot of people also who are excited to see it because they knew about it before. So um, 
I think it has the possibility to play to a fairly broad audience. So we'll see what it actually ends up doing. Yeah, I would think that would be your last point, I think, is is a good one in that this might be the first movie to come out that will have a broader appeal that will reach, uh, I would say, fan bases that are not um, diehards in one one way, shape or form that aren't like action, action fans or horror fans or something, uh, but that will bring the average person out to the theater. I think there's a chance of it. Um, I'm a little surprised by it because I think in general, um, some musicals take off and do super, super well in the theaters, but not all of them. It is a, it is a bit of a genre that you either like it or, or don't. So the numbers do surprise me, but if it does work out that this is what brings people back into theaters, I think it, we will see that in, in its box office numbers. So another, I think another, uh, there was some other things from the, from the survey. I thought one of the other interesting ones was 95% are looking for a feel good movie and escapism at the movie theater. I think that yep. makes absolute sense. <laughs> and 90% of people have seen crazy rich Asians. Hmm. So it will be interesting to see if, if that is actually a poll or if, if, they're actually like, oh, I like that director. I'll go see this. Or if it's just pulling from the same people who saw Crazy Rich Asians. Yeah. So, yeah, interesting. Uh, that one comes out in theaters starting this weekend. So if you are into In the Heights, if you like musicals, if you like Lynn manuel Miranda, this could be your cup of tea. It also does debut on HBO Max as well. So if you're not going to the theaters and you have HBO Max, you can see it that way too. All right, let's move on to number two, which is Black Widow is getting expanded aspect ratio. This is another uh, theater related story. And this is where we get a little bit technical on the IMAX side of it. So Black Widow is going to have a number of scenes, about 22 minutes of selected scenes throughout the film are getting an expanded ratio, aspect ratio for IMAX. Now, uh, if you're not super familiar with aspect ratio, basically the idea there is it's the width of the screen versus the height, the width of it versus the height. That's what an aspect ratio is. And what you get with IMAX, since they are bigger, wider screens, is you have the opportunity, the option, to get more breadth within the screen. You have more opportunity to do that. A lot of films that end up in IMAX are not necessarily shot with IMAX cameras and they are then converted to work on IMAX. And you actually, it becomes a thing when someone actually uses IMAX cameras. This is one thing that Christopher Nolan is famous for is using extensively using IMAX cameras. What this means in practice is it means that about 22 minutes of the film are going to get, you'll see about 26% more. That's what it basically works out to. Um, going with an aspect ratio of 1.9 to one. 
which will be interesting. And now, of course, it's not the whole film, but you will see bigger, broader things, which gives you a much more immersive experience. Uh, Rob, what do you think about it? Uh, I believe that we saw a lot of this uh, with The Dark Knight mm-hmm. when that came out, if I recall correctly. There were scenes like, especially in the city, uh, remember when in Hong Kong, when they flew the helicopter in a whole bunch of different places, they use this kind of effect. And when you're doing like an expansive setting like that, it's, it's really quite something. Um, definitely gives you the feel that you're some, some other kind of movie theater, <laughs> not just a regular movie theater. And, uh, I, I remember being very moved by it in that movie. So I'm sure it'll be the same with this. Yeah, I think, I think this is one of the downsides of what we have seen with IMAX. We've seen an increase in IMAX screens. We haven't seen nearly as much use of the IMAX cameras and, and getting some of those wider aspect ratios. So you're not getting the full, truly the full IMAX experience on a lot of the movies you see in IMAX. So whenever you get extended portions of things shot with IMAX cameras, and done with a wider aspect ratio, it really, really does show up and make a difference. Um, Part of what the article was saying is that the IMAX company, in addition to working really well with Marvel over the years, is working on ways to get their cameras to be more user-friendly. And I think that would be a huge step forward, both for IMAX and for the movie industry, if more things can get actually shot with IMAX cameras. Mm -hmm. So we can be looking forward to going to see Black Widow in IMAX to see the extra aspect ratio on July 9th. Not too long from now, less than a month now. All right, and our last one is a special little teaser that came up uh, this past week. It was announced that Jurassic World Dominion will get a preview exclusively on F9, the new Fast and Furious, on the IMAX screen. So we're going right back to IMAX. So it looks like Universal is going to be debuting a five-minute preview of Jurassic World Dominion to open before the F9 shows in IMAX, which opens June 25th. And what's interesting about the five-minute preview is that it will be the prologue set 65 million years ago. And apparently we're going to get to see the original mosquito biting a dinosaur, which Mm. is cool. So it goes back to 65 million years ago, and we're going to get a preview of that. It's interesting because this, this was a tactic that was widely done previously, but has been something that's been a little underused. Uh, I know that, I think the Star Trek, the original Star, the, um, the, the new version of Star Trek, the first movie, did a similar five-minute preview uh, before mm-hmm. The Hobbit. Uh, that was one I can remember. But it's cool. It gives uh, you a Ant- little extra incentive. They did one for uh, Ant-Man, too. I don't remember which mm. movie it was before, but Ant-Man did the same thing. Yeah. Before. And it's nice because you get an extended, it's not just a, a trailer, it's an extended scene. It's, it's like a whole five-minute five minute scene. So that is something really interesting. What do you make of it, Rob? Uh, I, I really like when they do this with movies, like you had said, 
previously uh, Star Trek and a uh, uh, thing with Star Trek Into the Darkness, if I remember right, um, did this. Yeah, and it was so Into did, the Darkness, yes. Yeah. So did Ant-Man. Um, it is nice to see like a little full beginning of a movie to whet your appetite for what's coming next. And I think that pairing it with uh, Fast and the Furious is uh, Fast 9 is a good move on their part. Um, because I think there's a lot of overlap between those audiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they also mentioned that they did one previously, uh, prior to the pandemic with Birds of Prey, uh, at, during an opening for It Chapter 2. Mm. So that was one that they did recently. But this is a little bit of an old school tactic, and I like it. I think it also continues to signify that... Uh, People are trying to give you incentives to go back to theaters. And unfortunately, this movie, Jurassic World Dominion, does not come out until summer 2022. So we're almost exactly a year away from Jurassic World Dominion, which, I mean, you know, they're going to tease us all. And then we got to wait a year to see the film. I mean, that's yeah, a the little actual bit dinosaurs cool. are going to be roaming the earth before we get to it. Yeah, for real. But this is fun. I, I think anytime you get sort of this this fun kind of aspect it just makes the film and the theater experience that much better and i remember for star trek into darkness i was almost as excited to see that clip as i was to go see the hobbit movie so it really does make a difference uh and that just leads us to our kind of final little segment um what's coming out in theaters this week there's really only two of note uh, and that's In the Heights, which we've already talked about, and Peter Rabbit 2. So, Rob, are you going to see either one of them? I'm probably going to see In the Heights because I, I really like Lin-Manuel Miranda and I like musicals. So I'm, I think I'm starting to go to uh, two movies every Wednesday. So I think that's going to be one of my ones next week. Okay. To go check out. I'm not sure if I will or not. Um, my wife might want to see In the Heights maybe I would go see that with her. Uh, so we'll see. I don't know. And I'm sure I'll see Peter Rabbit with my children at some point, whether it's in the theater or not, I can't stay. Yeah. Yeah. You're likely to, you're likely to go down that road at some point. <laughs> uh, did you see the first one? I did. And I did see that it? one in, in the theater. It was good. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was pretty quality. Rachel McAdams and uh, Domino Leeson, however you pronounce his name. Uh, are the two main characters in the movie and obviously besides computer animated Peter Rabbit and it did have some very funny parts throughout it with the animals uh, involved so yeah it was, a, it was a good family movie to watch Peter Rabbit's kind of a sarcastic jerk James Corden <laughs> is the person who plays him or does his voice so and not anything uh, less than you would expect from him being the voice actor no doubt <laughs> All right, so let's move on to our discussion tactics or topics, not tactics, topics. <laughs> topics is the right Either word. or. Either or, whatever. <laughs> so I brought this one back up. Um, we are going to revisit a discussion we had a while ago on a podcast about the goldfinch. And this may seem like it's coming out of nowhere because I didn't actually watch the goldfinch this week. However, I was reading something. And it all of a sudden, this film popped into my head and I started analyzing this film in a new light. 
Uh, when I watched The Goldfinch, which was a movie that came out in 2019, based on the the novel The Goldfinch, the best-selling novel. When I watched it, I liked the movie. I always felt like there was something to it that I was that I that I wasn't quite getting. Like I liked it. I felt like there was something there, but I wasn't quite experiencing it in its fullness. Mm-hmm. So, Rob, I want to throw these ideas out to you and get your thoughts on this, because we've both seen this movie. I think we've both seen it more than once. Yes, I've probably seen it four or five times, I think. So I want to I want to get I want to get your your feel on this. So what I was reading was basically breaking down the idea of what separates art from propaganda. And basically with art, art is essentially someone taking something unknown and attempting to explore it to find out what it means. Whereas propaganda is the reverse in which we start out with, here's what we know, and now let's put it into a form of art. So we start with a conclusion and then we move on to art, whereas true art, great art moves in the other direction. So for some reason, the goldfinch started popping into my brain on this. Now, if you're this is going to include spoilers because we've, we've got to talk about some of the aspects of this. So if you haven't seen the goldfinch and want to avoid the spoilers, um, this is your spoiler warning. So basically in the film. Uh, This young boy is at a museum looking at this famous painting of a goldfinch with his mother. When a bomb goes off in the theater, his mother is killed. In the chaos, he ends up taking this priceless piece of art. Um, And his life life goes on from there. Um, It's a bit of a tragic life. He stays with the family for a while. Then he ends up, his real father comes back into his life. He's a bit of a deadbeat. Uh, He ends up working with his mentor on furniture. And there's lots of aspects of the film. I won't go through the whole thing. But this is what got me thinking. Um, So much of his life. So he starts out, he hides away this piece of art. And in an aspect... That was the one true thing in his life. This is one real piece of art, which he connected with the real relationship with his mother. Everything else in his life from that point comes from the opposite aspect where it's fake. It's false. It's fraudulent. You know, he has, he has this family, but it isn't his family. Then his dad comes back and he doesn't actually have Like his dad is kind of a fake dad, as it were, doesn't really care about him. His relationship with his friend, when he, I think we're in, what is they in Florida or they're in Arizona? I forget which. Uh, I think they're near Las Vegas. Vegas. Yes. Yes. Vegas. Okay. That was a relationship where he thinks he has this close friend. His friend ends up stealing the artwork from him, but he doesn't even know. And he ends up working in his, his mentor's furniture shop forging pieces of art forging art furniture it's like as long as he had that that priceless piece of art locked away boxed away the genuine thing hidden kind of symbolizes that was the one true piece of art in his life and everything else along the way 
was fraudulent, even to the point where his relationship with his fiance was fraudulent because she was in love with somebody else. So it seems like everything in his life, every aspect of his life was fake because he was hiding away anything that was genuine as a result of the death of his mom. And it's symbolized throughout the movie by his hiding this piece of art, the goldfinch. And his, his mentor ends up yelling at him about two things, about him forging the pieces of furniture in his name and about him hiding away this piece of art. And it always struck me that there should be a connection there. And I, I feel like I go back to that idea about art being genuine, true art being genuine and the rest of it being fraudulent on those two things. He was both hiding away the piece of art that was genuine and spending his life basically developing forgeries. And that connects with his character. Am I explaining this in a way that makes any sense? Because <laughs> I wrote it down differently. I'm trying not to read what I yeah. wrote down on this. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think I track with what you were saying. And it always struck me that when he takes this piece of art, as a kid, as a kid, I don't think he necessarily really understands the impact of what he's doing. Yeah. And I think that that bleeds through into the rest of his life where all these things happen to him, all these circumstances come upon him that are huge and make no sense and are frustrating and false, like you said, and fake. And it's, it's really devastating. He gets taken away from family that probably loves him more than his own dad, who, you know, is just there to, it turns out we find out to basically use him to steal his identity and get money. Yeah. Um, it's really the only reason that he comes back for him in the first place. Um, and, and you see in that moment when he goes to, open the painting again and he hides it he hides it he doesn't even look at it and i think like you said he always has that feeling that no matter what else is going wrong in the world there's always that touchstone he can come back to he doesn't even have to look at it he can just hold the thing wrapped up and know that things are going to be okay and we see that in the movie a couple times um but then the, the shattering of that reality when he finally opens it up and sees that it's a textbook instead of a, a painting um, kind of puts him at a place where he, he acts from that point like there's nothing left to live for because that was the only thing that was true, the only art in his life, not propaganda, then what is there to continue striving for or towards? And... This movie is real. It's a punch to the gut. Yeah. Because I think we all want that feeling of there being this truth and this art in our lives and not what somebody else has put upon us or told us is reality. And a reality that puts us in a place where we are minimalized and marginalized and at the end of the movie, he's really at that point. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I definitely see that connection there. 
And we can talk about that. It's like when he comes finally, like the forgeries in his life are just building up and building up and building up until he reaches that crisis moment when he opens up the painting and finds that that too is a forgery because it's a book and not the actual painting. It's not until that moment till he's forced to confront the fact that everything in his life is fake. And, and his, you can just see the just desperation to get back what something that was genuine. And it's not until he deals with that fact that he can come back to some semblance of reality and start to move forward in some, in some way. He's just been stacking on forgeries and fake things on top of fake things. And I think that's represented by the fact that he has this hidden away painting. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's fascinating to me because I think, you know, some of the things, one of the things I was reading along this line about art was it was talking about that art is so devastatingly, it's so devastating to us when it's done well, that we have to kind of minimize it. We have to hide it. Like we can't actually look at it in its full force because it just hits us too hard. And I, I felt like that was, that was really wrapped up well in that, in that movie. Yeah. I think that that as an overarching, what is this movie trying to tell us is a pretty, pretty good synopsis of mm-hmm. where they're trying to go with the story. Yeah. And, and, and the, the thing is that we, we say this about this movie and you, you pull this out of this movie, but, virtually every movie has some impetus behind it or some mm-hmm. background story they're trying to tell you or a value they're trying to espouse to you. That's what media is and movies are not any different. Yeah. And I think instinctively we can, we instinctively have a grasp when something's coming at something from a genuine art perspective, as opposed to when someone, when something has something has an agenda where they're not exploring the art and they're not exploring it, but they're coming at you with an agenda. I think we instinctively kind of revolt from that, uh, whether we know what we're doing about about it or not. And and so just thinking through this gives me another level of appreciation for the way that movie was developed. And it, it straddles that line and makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. Because you know that there's something there. And this is this is the thing when I saw it the first couple of times, it's like, I know there's more here. I know there's more, there's more to this story, but I haven't quite landed on where it is. So when I was thinking about this today, I'm like, I feel like I got to talk about this with Rob to see whether this makes any sense to him or not on the podcast. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if you have not seen the goldfinch, check it out if you can. Yeah. Well, thank you. And this, uh, I'm using this as a therapy session to kind of get out, <laughs> get out what's going on. So, <laughs> all right. So let's move on to something a little less, uh, a little less meaty. We're going to talk about villains in the MCU. So right. IGN, IGN came out with this interesting article where they ranked the top 25 villains in the MCU. So we will link to that list so you can take a look at it. Uh, but we thought we'd talk about the list. It's interesting. Um, so we're going to talk about a couple of things, our thoughts on the list in general. We're going to 
We're going to talk about our favorite and least favorite villains amongst that list. Uh, so, Rob, which one do you want to start with? Do you want to start with our, our favorites, least favorites of the villains, or do we want to start about our thoughts on the list itself? Uh, let's go with our favorites, I guess. Okay. So, who were your favorites MCU villains? And by the Apparently. way, this list does include some that are on the TV series. And yes. since it's a movie podcast, eh, we don't like go there, but they're on the list. So Apparently, I like underrated villains because, uh, and it might have something to do with who the actors are. Um, but one that stuck out to me as being very low, in my opinion, and one that I really like was Justin Hammer, which is mm. played by Sam Rockwell. Interesting. Um, in the Iron Man movies. And... I think that I connect with him as a villain because he is a human being. He's not perfect. He makes mistakes. Uh, He lets his ego and his emotions at times overwhelm him. And that makes him fail in some of his efforts as a villain. Uh, But I thought that his character was just portrayed really well, especially in contrast uh, to, uh, the character in Iron Man 2, uh, the Russian villain guy whose name I'm not remembering right now. Um, in, in contrast to that, he like that the, the Russian guy is this force of will and power and strength. And uh, Justin Hammer is just kind of this, oh, it's okay. I'll take care of it. I'll get all this stuff ready for you and it'll be okay. And then the plans all fall apart. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I like that. I like seeing the reality of someone going through and not, always succeeding and not just having like this unlimited ability to always get it right, which some villains I think have sometimes. Yeah. Um, Another one that I really like and uh, has made an appearance on Captain America, the uh, or uh, sorry, Falcon and the winter soldier TV show, but was also in uh, other movies, civil war, uh, particularly helmet Zemo Mm, uh, played by Daniel rule, I think is, might be my favorite favorite <laughs> and he's listed on my list he's listed as the ninth on this list which i think is very low i agree uh, because his his character is just written so well uh with his family and friends dying in Sokovia, his his desire to get revenge for that but the way he seeks revenge is to completely manipulate and alter the mindsets of people which is so much more dangerous, I think, than just going after someone and killing them, which some villains do. And I think that's why I like him because he's so focused in on the psychological aspect of being the bad person. And in his mind, he's not the bad person. Uh, The Avengers are the bad people. And he believes it and he acts out and he carries out his actions all based on that ethos. And it's very clear that he is committed to it. Yeah, I agree. He's on my list. Zemo's on my list because I think his was his was the most interesting, different, and realistic, I would say, of the villains for all those reasons you articulated. His warfare on them was significantly more mental, especially when you've got a team of a team of superheroes with crazy powers. How do you how do you attack them head on like everyone else was? Uh, he chose to go a different path and he goes the mental side of it. And he finds the strains in the relationships and he uses Bucky Barnes to manipulate them, which I thought it was just a, a, an excellent 
excellent use of a villain and his his pressures lasted for a long while mm-hmm. and and his was one of the most successful campaigns i would say against the avengers yeah so when you attack the mind it's a lot different than just hacking off an arm or killing someone mm-hmm. yeah yeah um did you have any other ones on your list of favorites uh those are the two i had written down for that okay all right um I think another one for me on, on my list was, uh, oh, uh, Mysterio. I thought Mysterio was interesting too, along similar lines, uh, because he poses, he poses as Spider-Man's friend. He poses as his mentor. He gets in there with him and then completely uses that against him. Uh, so I thought he was, I thought he was underrated as well. Uh, I thought, uh, I thought that was well played. So Mysterio was, was the second one on my list. What do you got for least favorite? Uh, I actually didn't scroll through the whole list. So I don't know if he's on the list. I'm, I'm assuming he must be, but uh, Dormammu from uh, Doctor Strange. Mm. I don't know if he's even on the list, but to me, he's the most confusing. <laughs> <laughs> yes villain maybe that's why i i don't like him as much just because i don't get it you know yeah um but i I, in as a whole most of the villains have been pretty well written Mm -hmm. in my opinion in the marvel universe there's not much you can nitpick at yeah there's not a there's not a ton that you can nitpick at i think um ego from the second Guardians of the Galaxy, Peter Quill's father. I think I I didn't like him as much. I didn't like the way they kind of the, the ending, the way they kind of wrapped that up a little bit. So I think he would not be, he would be on my list of ones that I was not particularly fond of. Um, I also think I will go with um, another least favorite of mine is probably they put on the children of Thanos on there, um, mm-hmm. which I wouldn't necessarily have considered them real villains. Uh, but yeah, they were weird looking. So yeah, they were not a favorite of mine. Uh, what are your thoughts on the list overall? Uh, I thought it was pretty good. Like you said, uh, some of the characters are from the TV shows and I haven't actually seen um, the daredevil that, uh, Fisk and Purple Man are from, and I've heard that they're really good. Or I guess Purple Man is, is that Jessica Jones? That's Jessica uh, Jones, yeah. Yeah, but I haven't seen those shows, so I can't really. I don't feel like I can make an accurate claim mm-hmm. on if they're high, too high, or too low, or in the right spot. Yeah. Um, I I don't think there's too much arguing about Thanos being number one because the entire ten years of movies led up to that. So. Mm-hmm. I thought a couple of my thoughts on it was I thought Ronan was a little too low. Um, I just thought he played such a big role early uh, in the first Guardians of the Galaxy and as part of part of the original story. I thought he was too low. Uh, And I thought um, Ultron was also too low. I Mm -hmm. thought Ultron was was a pretty darn good villain. 
for the second Avengers movie. And to see him at number 14 surprised me, especially considering he is below ego, which I thought was way overrated. Yeah, I would agree with that. And and Johan Schmidt, Red Skull, being mm. number eight. Really? Red Skull at number eight? That surprised me um, because he's such a good actor. He's just, he's such a good actor. And I thought his villain was very, very clear and very good. So that, that surprised me that he, Red Skull was as low as he was. Uh, I also thought Killmonger was a little high. I mean, I thought he was a good villain, but I don't know that I would have put him at number three. Yeah, I think that can be argued. Yeah. Yeah, but overall, I think it's an interesting list. It's interesting to see all the the villains kind of listed out in order. I, I think the most underrated, perhaps, is the Mandalorian or the man. Jeez, mm. the Mandalorian. My the Mandarin. Favorite. The Mandarin. <laughs> because the man, the Mandarin was. This is the way. <laughs> jeez. Uh, <laughs> The Mandarin was such a cool twist. That was such a yeah. fun twist when when that came out. He's just a dope uh, who's being used. I thought that was cool. So I thought that was probably the most fun villain on the list. All right. So let's move on to the watch list. These are movies we watched over the past week. And we'll give you a, a synopsis on them and what we thought. So, Rob, why don't you uh, why don't you go first? Uh, well, I watched about 8,000 movies this week. I sent yeah. Brian a picture of, I think I've literally watched like 12 movies this week because I went to the theater for two on Wednesday. We had a friend over Friday and Saturday. We watched two movies each night with them. Um, so I've got quite a ri- wide variety to choose from. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to go with uh, the first one is the Thomas Crown Affair, which I had not seen before with Pierce Brosnan mm. and Renee Russo about uh, businessmen who is also an art thief and it's very cleverly done focused in on a few specific pieces of art and he maneuvers and manipulates to get the one he wants specifically and it's pretty fascinating how he does it and the uh the end game scene the last 10 or 15 minutes of the movie is really clever and probably one of the better shot and acted sequences like that i've seen in the movie and i had not seen the movie before so Nice. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that. It was my friend Jen's recommendation that we watch that. And uh, I've also been watching uh, the James Bond movies starting at the beginning okay. and going through again. So I started with uh, Dr. No, which is the first one we watched from Russia with Love, and we watched Goldfinger, and we're on Thunderball right now. So okay, uh, I'm going to go through and watch them all again in order because it's been, I think, it was two summers ago, I think, when we did that the first time. So I'm looking forward to continuing that. Probably watch some more Thunderbolt tonight and maybe start the next one. Sweet. I like it. All right. Um, I watched the first two of the sequel trilogy for Star Wars. I figured after we talked a week or two ago about J.J. Abrams' thoughts on the trilogy, I thought, you know, it's been a while since I don't know that I've gone back and actually watched all three of them in a row. I've watched them individually in between in the theaters and then when they came out on video. I don't know if I've sat down and watched them all together. So I, I got through the first two 
this week, The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi. And one of the things that struck me, I knew it at the time, it's been one of the criticisms, but the level to which they were pulling from the original trilogy, they really, really replicated a lot of the plots and a lot of the storylines, not only for The Force Awakens, but also for The Last Jedi too. Um, Particularly, it starts out with the First Order finding and attacking the rebellion base, which is precisely how the the Empire Strikes Back started. There were so many similar sequences and similar things uh, through those first two movies that were close to replicas of the originals. And that really, that really doesn't do justice to the movies. I think they really could have done a better job on those aspects because some of the things that were original, I found quite interesting. In The Last Jedi, that whole unknown connection between Rey and between Kylo Ren was really interesting. I thought that was a, that was a nice twist. It was a, good, it was a good plot point. It was a good part of the story. And I think that really made for some interesting scenes and some of the best scenes in there were, uh, were came out of that particular storyline in itself. Um, the whole whiny, moody Luke um, really, that still bothers me. I still think that was entirely unnecessary, uh, but it did give you whiny, whiny Luke did give you a great Yoda scene. So yes, that was a fantastic Yoda scene, and I really, really enjoyed it. So if if we had to get a half a movie of whiny Luke just to get that great Yoda scene, it might have been worth it. <laughs> my argument for whiny Luke will always be that even in the 80s movies, he was whiny a lot of the time. He was. So it's, it's not really fair me to expect him to grow up and to never have that problem again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think it's, I think it's, they're not terrible movies, but they, they all have things that are, that are just, there's a lot of things that prevent them from being great. I mean, The Last Jedi, that whole sequence of, of the two of them going off to that, you know, alien gambling planet, that whole scene is just a disaster. Like, it's just horrible. It's just horrible horrible the whole thing and it's useless the whole thing is useless so um there's there's a number of things along those lines i did i did enjoy the uh the luke mentally projecting himself into the final battle sequence i thought that was yeah. a cool twist i thought that was really well done so there are some very good aspects of each of these movies, but there's just enough. And part of it's the repetitive nature of them that um, that gives you the feeling that they, they were certainly not as good as they could have been. So you got anything else, Rob? Uh, not for that. No. Okay. All right. Let's move on to our recommendations uh, so our recommendations for this week, look, we're, we're going with movies with a great villain. Movies with a great villain. So, Rob, what do you got on the recommendation front? Uh, I was thinking a little outside the box here. And, you know, we think of the Marvel movies and the well-established, like, headline villains as, 
the main thing we look at when we talk about something like this. And I was thinking more an esoteric villain or maybe not necessarily a specific person, maybe a group of people, maybe a thing. Um, and it made me go back to some of M. Knight's earlier movies. And I think that uh, in each of the village signs and Unbreakable, you've got some pretty interesting and worthwhile villains in those movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the village, uh, I'm not going to spoil what happens in the movie, but the villain is definitely not what you expect it to be and completely um, destabilizes an entire community when it's figured out. In uh, Unbreakable, the villain is just bad guys in general. I mean, Samuel L. Jackson is the main bad guy but there are all kinds of other bad people he runs across and it kind of makes you think about who out there you know might be in that profile or have those kind of thoughts or be willing to go to those lengths to take the kind of actions that the bad people in the movie do um and with signs the villain is really unseen for a whole lot of the movie and i think those kind of movies are particularly fascinating another one that i'm just thinking of now as i talk about it is uh the horror movie it comes at night which is a very interesting horror movie because you never see the thing uh you see the effects of what it's doing to people you see uh, a few dead bodies but you never actually see it so that that is maybe almost scarier than actually seeing it not being able to see it so I like uh, just having a wide variety and breadth of options when it comes to what a villain can be in a story. And Mm -hmm. I think those are some examples of different takes on it. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Those, they do have, they do have some really fascinating villains on those. So for me, I'm going to go with, uh, one that I will recommend it's on HBO max and that's no country for old men. Mm. This is a classic Javier Bardem villain where he plays just a complete psychopath. And there are just some amazing scenes with him. I, I think in particular when he, and he's in, he goes on this killing spree where he's just running around killing random people and he goes into this convenience store and he's having this conversation in this convenience store with this unsuspecting guy. And he doesn't know, like his life is literally on the line. And just the interaction there is, is so fantastic. It's so, so good. So that's, that's the, that's the first one I will mention on that. And we're going to continue with the Javier Bardem theme and go with Skyfall. His character in Skyfall is an amazing foil for James Bond. And his acting just just brings out the best in both Bardem, Skyfall, and and Bond, I think. And that's one of the things that makes Skyfall work really, really well. So those are my recommendations. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting to that one in about 20 movies. (laughs) Yeah, you got a little ways for that one. All right. I think that's uh, I think that's good for the show. You got anything else? Seems like a good wrap. 
All right. Well, that is the show, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Film for Fans. Uh, make sure you check out filmforfans.com. I'm going to be trying to get out my review of A Quiet Place Part 2 in the next day or two. So be looking on the website for that, as well as other content on filmforfans.com. Make sure you rate and subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to watch our smiling faces as we as we talk through the podcast, you can check out our YouTube channel. Uh, make sure you leave us comments and tell your friends. Until next time, enjoy the movies. <laughs>